The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 45 of The Ascent of Board Games, the podcast where we talk about board games and how they got to the way they are and why we're all sad that we don't get to play enough of them. COVID. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. I mean, yeah, it's still a thing. Yeah. It is Quite definitely literally. still a thing. But let's not talk about that now. Let's talk about happier things. Well, I was actually going to talk about a sad thing because it's oh. finally happened, you guys. We've run out of ideas. <laughs> so, oh, I thought you were going to say the singularity. No, I, don't, like, oh, wow. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. We've run out of ideas that we're interested yeah, in. We have correct. lots more ideas. We just look at them and we're like, meh. I don't even know if we can say that because, like, the real problem is, is because we haven't been able to get together to play games as much as we had once upon a time done, we don't have a ton of new games that we can talk about because we haven't had a chance to play them. Uh, I don't know that that's accurate. Frank's got infinite amounts of things he can talk about with Roland Moves, so we just that's haven't... Yes! <laughs> Soon. Soon. <laughs> yeah, we have lots of episode ideas coming, but the point is, we did have some comments and some discussions recently about how there are a lot of topics we talked about back in the early days of the podcast, several years ago, which is weird to think about, that we just haven't ever revisited. So we're going to try an experiment here and see how it goes with you, our listeners. We're going to go back to some of those early episodes and then see what has happened in those genres since. What exciting new stuff has come out. What suggestions you may have given us in that time period that we overlooked. And talk about some new stuff, hopefully. And frankly, some of the new stuff on this, this list made it to my table in the past month. So I was all enthused about talking about this. You've played board games in the last month, Frank? I did. Oh, God. Totally. Anyway, right. <laughs> we're actually going all the way back to episode one. Doodly, 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 when doodly. we really had no idea what we were doing, as opposed to now, when, of course, we obviously know what we're doing, he said sarcastically. And talk about deck building games. It's weird. So we looked back and we talked about seven games in that episode, <laughs> which would be like half of a current episode. I think we went a little more in depth back in the early days. But yeah, certainly there have been some new deck builders and bag builders coming out in the past several years. And some of them we think are interesting and worth talking about. And the first one we want to talk about is one that we've, I think, mentioned in other contexts, but it's still got some good deck building stuff going on. Yeah, we're not doing a history this time because we did it. It's Dominion. You right, exactly. Right. Yeah, see episode one for all the stuff that came before. Right. We're cutting off at 2016. Go. <laughs> all right. So in 2016, Clank Legacy hit our tables and we got exactly one game played in 2019 before we never played that game again. Well, almost. Uh, yeah, we did revisit Clank Legacy. 
This is a legacy version of Clank, plays very similarly to the initial game, although it is oddly cooperative. And I think I like the way that what they... What is it, though? <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I like the way they incentivized cooperation within the game. Because the game is not cooperative at all, mm-hmm. except that if anybody does poorly, the game punishes everybody. Because in the fiction of the game, there is an opposing corporation that will take advantage of your player's failures. And I like that. I thought that was one of my favorite things. So in Clank, you have a deck of cards that each card has some combination of three icons that allow you to do things. There is move, fight, and buy. So depending on the cards that you have in your hand, you can move your pawn on the board to get to locales that have story moments and or fabulous prizes. You can fight enemies to get goodies or protect yourself from damage that might be a result of moving. And lastly, you've got your buy power to get new and better cards from the market of six. After you take your turn, though, you are going to replenish the market, at which point you may reveal a dragon token, which could cause you to draw cubes from the bag, which are inevitably going to deal you and your boon companions damage. The person that gets back home with the most treasures, i.e. victory points, is the winner. But if anybody is knocked out prematurely and ends up getting zero points, the board game gets a mark of completion on its goals and slowly progressing to make the game more difficult for everybody. I love that. I really do. Except when you're the one getting zero. (laughs) Except for the one when I'm getting zero for the fourth time, because apparently I'm just terrible at this game. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know that I think the stuff that happens when people fail, you get an X on the bad guy track. I don't think that's punishing enough to make it really significantly cooperative. I agree. It's thematically cute. But, uh, yeah, and I mean, I am nothing if not a fan of thematics, so... And the theme in this one is based on Acquisitions Incorporated, which is a Penny Arcade D&D campaign multiverse franchise thing, mm-hmm. which is a lot of fun if you enjoy that sort of thing. Basically, the premise is that these are people who are have made dungeon delving and adventuring into a business, and so basically everyone has a particular role in the corporation. The theme is laid on heavily. If you're familiar with the acquisitioning storyline, you'll see a lot of familiar characters. If you're not, it's not really necessary. But it's entertaining, it's well-written, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, the theme is very thick in a good way, right? Like, it definitely comes through very strongly. There are lots of fun surprises in the story that are surprising and delightful. The game very much wants to delight you as the story progresses. I've not read any of the Acquisitions Inc. stuff, but Penny Arcade does such a great job with humorous fantasy writing that I think it's fine. I certainly am not at all put off by the fact that I have not read any of the source material because it is a trope done well, mm-hmm. I think would be the yeah, best I mean, way it's to explain it. It's all D&D it. and Dilbert corporate tropes. You know those. If you combine them, you can deal with yeah, the, yeah, you I, can I deal certainly with the wouldn't hold off from playing this game just because you're not familiar with Acquisitions Incorporated. 
Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, if you're looking for something a little bit shorter and you want something deck buildery, Clank itself is a perfectly good game. If you want to just sit down and play a single game and be done. The basic premise is that certain actions you take make noise. And for every noise you make, you put a cube in the bag. When the dragon attacks, you pull a bunch of cubes out of the bag. And whoever's cubes get pulled out get punched in the face by the dragon. Usually Mike. I mean, frequently, Mike. (laughs) Actually, whoever is not pulling cubes from the bag gets punched. We had a stretch going on during the campaign where whoever was pulling cubes from the bag, and nobody was cheating, at least I wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Whoever was pulling cubes from the bag literally never pulled any of their own cubes out. It was really weird. It was fun watching Mike be dead and then continuously pulling his color cube over and over and over again. I am absolutely terrible at managing the clank in that game for some reason. And part of this game is just random luck. So prepare your soul for that. Part is a strong way to say it. I'd say a lot of the Mm -hmm. looks like normal clank is random luck. Sure, sure. It's hard to say that it's entirely that because it is still a deck building and your luck is a product of the choices that you have previously made. Mm -hmm. But like even within that, it still feels like the game can just find a way to be like, hey, look, you've got a hand of five basic cards and your turn is just going to be the saddest turn. Even though you've got a deck full of really great cards that if you drew even a single one of them, you'd be fine. But no, no, we can't have nice things. Exactly. The game has a lot of fun legacy tropes. It does a lot of stuff that was fun with a legacy concept. There are fun surprises in the story and all that kind of stuff. So I will go so far as to say I think it is my favorite competitive legacy game. I think that's fair. Hmm. Is there a lot of competition Competitive legacy (laughs) games are hard to do well. Well, this and um, probably Rise of Queensdale is the other one that's that's high on my list. I've heard that's really good. It is. I think. Yeah, Queensdale. Yeah, I think this one might be a little better, just because, like, why is it Queensdale is a little drier? Yeah, it's definitely more Euro, for sure. Oh, my city. No, definitely my city. Okay. But just because we didn't mention at the beginning, this was a 2016 release from Renegade Game Studios, designed by Andy Clautis and Paul Denon. And that was Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated. Next, I'm going to talk about a game, and this one's going to be very quickly because we played this at a game convention a few years ago, back when game conventions were a thing, and everyone else at the table hated it, but I took home the prize table copy, and I still have it, even though I haven't played it since then, since no one else likes it. This is Altiplano, which is a 2017 release designed by Reiner Stockhausen and coming from also Renegade Games, I believe. Interesting. They're just all over the place. Yeah, you're going to hear some more of them. Mm-hmm. I think it's by Lookout Games in Germany, the original okay, publisher. Okay, that was probably yeah. the original, yeah. So Altiplano is a game about traveling the highlands of Peru and Bolivia, let's not forget Bolivia, where you're basically wandering around between a series of random-located things, and you're gathering resources, you're putting them together, you're using them to build things, you're gaining various victory points. It's a point salad game. It's definitely on the Euro end of the axis. But it's neat because... It's kind of a cross between a deck builder and a bag builder, because it's like a bag builder in that you have a literal bag of the resources that you pick up as you go different places. You collect your wool and your ore and your silver and whatever, but you're putting them into your own personal bag. And usually the way that goes is a deck builder, you have your own deck. In a bag builder, it's usually a communal thing. This is basically your own personal bag builder. 
It's definitely dry. It's the classic point salad where you're running around different locations, building things up. There is an amazing little llama token, which I think Mike made tremendous fun of. Yeah, it does not look like a llama or an alpaca. The art style was a choice. (laughs) I think it's beautiful. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay, I'm with Mike. (laughs) I just (laughs) like the facial expression alone. Long. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. It's real. It's real cute. It's definitely a choice. (laughs) It looks like his legs are just two pairs of pants. Does your alpaca not wear pants? Never, never. It does. Oh, you guys. Like, what's really weird is it almost looks like somebody made a alpaca costume for a goat. It looks like one of those two-person puppets. Right, exactly. Yeah, a little bit. Somebody stuck in bit. the back half, yeah. It, it's It's got a little bit of the Emperor's New Groove thing going on there as well. Yeah, okay, I could see that too. Anyway, this is a game that no one here likes, but I kind of do. It's Euro, it's dry, but it's well put together, plays relatively quickly. And if you like that sort of thing, it might be worth checking out. Plus, you get a little cardboard llama. Yeah, it's from the designer of Orléans. So it's supposedly Orléans light. And I've played Orléans, which is quite good. Sure. Mm-hmm. I could see that comparison. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there are, there's the what, the seven boards that each mm-hmm. have their own yeah, action. Yeah. Yep. Like, there's definitely a game there, just not for us, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's- well, it certainly wasn't for us the day that we played it, for sure. <laughs> yeah. That is true. Yeah. You know, it, it is the sort of thing that you have to be in a certain mindset for, but uh, I think it's a well-designed game, and it's cute, and the theme is different enough to be interesting to me. And you build your own bag of stuff. So, that is Altiplano. One that has recently gotten a really big expansion is 2017 Spirit Island from Greater Than Games. This is designed by Eric Roos and is a terrific cooperative game about defending a island from colonizers. 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 Thank you. I was going to say foreign invaders. The worst. White dudes. Let's just say it. (laughs) Yeah, basically. We have talked about this game in other episodes, but I think the one thing that's really worth mentioning is that the Jagged Earth expansion came out in 2020, and I think easily doubled the amount of content in the game giving it a six-player option, easily doubling the number of characters to choose from. Yeah, and and luckily in Spirit Island, everyone makes lots and lots of choices kind of at the same time, so adding a six-player doesn't add a ton of time. It does add some, right, because there's some additional discussion that needs to happen, but lots of the phases of Spirit Island are taken simultaneously. Yeah, and even the parts that are not simultaneous play like so everyone picks an action simultaneously by putting their card down in front of them or number of cards down in front of them and then one at a time players execute those cards and then the bad guys go and they're kind of automated and scripted to some degree but even the parts that aren't simultaneous play are very cooperative it is a here's what i'm doing how does that mesh with what Joe is doing? How does that mesh with what Jason is wait, doing? Wait, wait, wait. Have I, have I been playing this wrong, Mike? Because I thought it was just, why aren't you taking care of your area? What are you doing? <laughs> I mean, that is often what the conversation boils down to, but it is, it is dressed up more than that. 
The other nice thing about this is that while there's certainly cooperative stuff that needs to be done and you need to work out, hey, who's covering those, these mountains, who's taking care of these guys in the corner, the individual play is just complex enough that you can't really alpha gamer this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have enough to do to keep track of your own stuff that you can't really try and tell other people what to do. Yeah. Except for when you are asking for help. Right. At that point, it is, okay, how can we together take care of all the problems that we need? Which, you know, solid cooperative play there. And there are good combos because each of the gods has a very totally different deck, actually, and different powers. Um, So it's Mm -hmm. very asymmetric in terms of what you can do, the style play. The deck building comes in, though, when at some point you will inevitably be digging through a deck of cards that are more general powers. And there are certainly ones in that general deck that are stronger with some gods than others, but everyone has access to them. Yeah. And you draw four at a time, pick one, and then put the others that you didn't choose into a discard pile to be shuffled back in later. It is simple in execution but very deep and rich in actual mechanical play yeah the thing that makes it both interesting and sort of extra thinky is that you know at the end of at a given turn what the bad guys are going to do they're going to you know produce more guys here and they're going to move into this kind of terrain so you can really predict what they're going to do and adjust your plans accordingly but just takes a little extra time so there's so many of them and the game is hard i mean really hard Mm -hmm. yeah we've played this with friend of the show john and friend of the show sean f there we go differentiate they'll know who they are i continue to refuse well i tried and they got curb stomped by it and I think that kind of put a taste in their mouths for the game. It is, I know, for John specifically, not his favorite. Yeah, well. I mean, it's certainly one of those kind of games where bad stuff just keeps happening, right? Yeah. Like, that's the mechanism of advancement, is more guys are added to the island, more people arrive, more cities are built, more places are, are messed up, right? Like, that's the thing you're trying to... It's very much a game of trying to hold back the loss as opposed to winning, Right, that's the style of game. And like lots of cooperative games go down that route of like, instead of, hey, let's try to win, it's let's try to not lose. And Spirit Island is definitely a, hey, let's not lose game. Mm-hmm. Very much yeah, it's, so. a, it's a game of advanced triage for the first half of it. And then you're like, oh, yeah. we're really powerful spirits. Let's wipe out entire cities. Now, now we, we can go on the offensive. Yeah. Yep. So to touch on the expansion, it, the extra player is really, is really nice and doesn't greatly add to the playtime. I got the Kickstarter of it. I got the neoprene mat that had the thematic board on the other side. The thematic board is super fascinating because unlike the normal board, like in the normal board, every single grid is guaranteed to have the same distribution of tiles. On the thematic map, you're not guaranteed that, right? You have like groupings of mountains, groupings of, you know, savannas, groupings of forests. So it feels a lot more like a real island and actually plays quite a bit differently because of that, right? There's quite a bit more of, hey, I need to go help my allies, my neighbors, because, you know, today is forest day and I need to go help them. But tomorrow's desert day and I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I'm Uh, a forest god. I can't do nothing with deserts. (laughs) I got nothing. So I'm very, very happy. Like I I kickstarted it and when it got here with all the new content, it's super tons of new spirits, all, all kinds of fun stuff. And let us not forget that, Joe, at least you and I have still not had a chance to play with the 
country specific invaders. I really want to do that. I think it'll make the game really hard, though. <laughs> Talk about a game that really gives you bang for your buck. Like, mm-hmm. there's so much game here. Yeah, I don't know how anyone plays it without your organizer, Joe. That thing is, is so helpful. <laughs> well, part of it, I think, is there is also what I haven't played myself, but I've heard is quite a good digital implementation. It is a good digital implementation, much like all of Greater Than Games digital implementations. They have a deal with... Uh, Candelabra Games? Candelabra yeah. Games. Mm-hmm. And they're all solid. My biggest problem is that they were designed for a tablet in mind, mm. because trying to play multiplayer on the computer is not fun. Yeah, it needs an actual multiplayer. That's the worst problem. Yeah. Since it's a game that encourages simultaneous multiplayer, yeah, trying to yeah. do it hot seat is not quite clean. Yeah. yeah. When they kicked the original app, they didn't quite reach the multiplayer goal, and Candelabra is not the kind of company that has the bandwidth to like go above and beyond, as it were, right? They're a pretty small team. It's not Candelabra, it's Handelabra. Handelabra. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant Handelabra. Yes. I was like, if there's another game company with almost no, the no, same no. name. <laughs> well, like, they also did the Sentinels of the Multiverse, mm-hmm. which, because Sentinels does not have simultaneous play, Hot Seat Multiplayer works a lot better in that. Mm-hmm. It's so close. I have a feeling that someday Handelabra will implement, but until it does, I think that is going to be one that I save for long plane trips. Fair enough. Funnily enough, the top article on Handelabra Games' website is talking about their online multiplayer for <laughs> Spirit Island. <laughs> That's coming out with Branch and Claw, apparently. Oh, okay, cool. That was Spirit Island. Let's go somewhere dark. Let's go to the edge of darkness. We can all be edge lords. Edge of Darkness, released in 2019 by Alderac Entertainment Group, designed by John DeClaire. I really like Edge of Darkness, right? When we originally did this episode way back in the day, we talked about Mystic Veil, which was, let's call it more of a tech demo than a game. And Edge of Darkness is that kind of next step into actual game. Edge of Darkness is you are all kingdoms in a continent, or is it, I think you're all houses in a kingdom that are trying to defend your borders from the darkness, right, the impending darkness, and on your turn, right, you'll have a hand of cards that you draw from a deck, and they have... Let me see if I can describe this, because this is going to be very similar to when we described Mystic Veil. The cards have three segments in them, and each segment can be either nothing or something that you either started with or you have since added to the card. The game comes with, like I think it's like 30 or 40 different locations that are included. So there'll be like eight locations for a specific game. And so you can slot one of those location cards, and maybe those location cards make you better at getting coins, or maybe they make you better at fighting, or maybe they make you better at sending your guy around the city and getting bonuses. And you slot it into one of your cards, and then you play all your cards in front of you, getting all the benefits of the cards. The thing that's interesting about this game, all the cards go to a shared discard pile, except if it's a card of another player, and it goes to their specific discard pile so that they will get it sooner since you played that card. You don't have a ton of cards to play on your turn. I can't remember how many. It's like it's three? Like, two I or think three, it's or, three or something? Yeah. yeah, but they do a lot. Each card can have up to three positions in it. So each card really has like three actions on it. Up to three actions. 
And the way you actually get cards is there's a drafting mechanic, right? Drafting is maybe there's a stack of cards and you can take from the left as many cards as you want. But if you want to skip cards, you have to pay a specific resource to skip those cards, right? So you could be like, well, cool. I want the first two cards. Those cards are great. I don't want the second two cards. Nobody's advanced those cards yet. I'll take the fifth card and then, you know, I'll skip the last card or whatever. And then you, whatever cards you have, you play them out. If they were another player's card, you give them to another player. So that'll be in their hand for the next round. And that's pretty much how the drafting works. And every turn, one of the actions you will take is you will advance one of the cards in your hand, assuming one of the cards in your hand has space in it. Towards the later game, you may not have space. But early in the game, right, almost every card will have two spaces open, so you'll almost certainly have space to add additional actions. I remember the first time I played it, I discovered that it's very possible to build a card that is counterproductive. I don't remember what the initial context was, but it's like, you know, I had a thing that was like, draw two cards on the same card as the thing that said discard two cards. And I'm just like, well, I just, this card is now does nothing. Wow. God, it does nothing. It definitely takes a little bit of learning to figure out what the heck you're doing. But it's an interesting game. I remember my reaction was sort of this game is fine. It didn't really jump out and grab me, but it certainly got some interesting stuff going on. I think of all of the games that we've talked about when it comes to deck building games, especially of these new deck building games, this one feels like it is of the previous generation of deck building games. It feels a little bit more akin to the Dominion, Thunderstone, and Ascension side of the deck building than some of the newer games. But what it lacks in the actual deck building mechanics, I think it more than makes up for in the thought process that goes into the card crafting side of things. Yeah, and I think it's also worth mentioning that as you advance those cards, I think on the reverse side, you're making the monsters that you have to battle more powerful too. Oh, that's right. It's an interesting interesting mechanic because like as you get more powerful, so too do the enemies, which I think is a really clever mechanic, right? Because Mm -hmm. it keeps the game kind of almost staged, right? Because as you get better, the game gets more difficult. Because like games like Thunderstone or uh, Ascension, you could pull like the the monsters has got like ten, twelve attack power on the first round, and you're like, I'm this is gonna just sit here for the entire game because I'm never gonna yep. get strong enough to fight it, and it's just a waste of a market slot. But yeah, this one's kind of self balancing, which is nice. Yeah, it's definitely a step up from Mystic Veil. Vale. I still feel like this doesn't quite reach the potential of what the card crafting system is going to be able to do. Yeah, that's later, Yeah, actually. I can see that. But, like, this one was, like I said, I really enjoyed it and would love to go back and play more. I think if I had any complaints about the game, it would be about how big the game is. <laughs> it is very big. Yeah. I mean, a lot of reasons that it has not made it to the table as much is it's just hard to transport, right? Like, it's an unusual size box. So if you want to bring this game, if I'm going to like some kind of like game meetup or something, which has happened occasionally in the last couple of years, it's not been a game I've brought because it's like, well, cool, I need to pack. I'm bringing a bunch of games for people to play. Edge of Darkness is so large that it's like I functionally get one big game slot, yeah. right? I can, I can bring Darkness, this or I could bring six other games. Yeah, right. So that, I think I agree with Mike that that's one of the reasons that we have got at the table less than we perhaps might have. is just the box and all the components are chunky. Not in a bad way, it just makes it hard to travel with it. 
Yeah. I have no room to speak, Joe. That is literally the reason that I have kickstarted a second edition of Sentinels of the Universe, <laughs> just so I can start taking that game places again. Mike, you just like giving them money, let's be honest. I do. Like, I, I will support good game companies. Well, you so. should. So that was Edge of Darkness. I'd like to take us entirely out of darkness, but I really can't. Our next game, Call to Adventure, embraces both the light and the dark. Uh, released in 2019 by Brotherwise Games originally, designed by Johnny O'Neill and Christopher O'Neill, which, are they the brothers from Brotherwise Games? Does anyone know? Seems like a reasonable assumption. I can't prove it. I don't know. I, I likewise don't know, but it's probably a good assumption. Mm-hmm. In Cult to Adventure, you are crafting basically the history of your hero. Are you going to be a, a shining white knight of rescuing everyone and having, you know... Lame. Yeah, exactly. You're going to be <laughs> a paladin like Joe likes to play all the time. Or you can be a cool, like, edgy Batman-type character who's getting vengeance for his slaughtered parents and he learned to be a thief. Overplayed. (laughs) But my parents are dead! I know, I know, Mike, I know. Functionally, the way this works is at the beginning of the game, you're given a number of cards that reveal your origin, your motivation, and ultimately your destiny. These cards give you characteristics that determine what types of runes you can cast, because in this game you're trying to accomplish challenges to collect cards. You're either defeating adversaries, or you're picking up skills, or adding to your story as a hero in an attempt to earn um, both experience points or earning triumph, tragedy, and destiny points. Basically the victory points for how you win the game. And the nice thing is, you can have any kind of mixture you want. You can go total dark edgelord like Batman and go for just the, the most tragic of tragic, or you can go total white knight, or you can have a mixture of the two. And the way that this works is you have a matrix of cards that you can select from based on where you are in your character's development. If you've completed the necessary cards to slot underneath your origin, you can start working on the cards that go underneath your motivation and ultimately get to the cards that you slot underneath your destiny. The way this works is each of these cards, let's say you're trying to escape your pursuers. So for this particular test, it's going to be a dexterity check. So now you can cast the three default runes that you have, which you always cast every single time. You can optionally cast the dark runes, which might make you more lean towards your darker tendencies. And then if you have the matching attribute, in this case agility or dexterity, you can also cast that rune. And in this case, this challenge is at four. If you successfully get four rune icons on the runes that you cast, congratulations, this card is yours. Now, going forward, you get whatever benefit that card gets you. So each of the cards gives you a choice of, in in this particular case, you were lost in the woods, so you can try and escape your pursuers, or you can try to find a place of power. And they give you different attributes to try and match and give you different benefits when you accomplish them. I just wanted to clarify the drawing the runes thing that we talked about. These are functionally kind of like a coin toss. They're these, you know, really nicely made little plastic rune tokens that you flip them over and they'll either have a marking on them, which is good, or they won't. So it's sort of like a coin toss type of thing, but it's very thematically put together. A lot of the cards in the game are very evocative, right? With a very small Mm -hmm. amount of text, right? Like all it is is functionally every card is on the banner you know, lost in the woods, like something, and then two options, right? Either escape your pursuers or find a place of power in this case. And like, it has a very nice piece of art, but like every card in this game, I found to be very evocative, right? It's like, oh, you know, you can, you know, either learn lessons or be make friends or like all, all kinds of stuff, right? And I think it tends to flow very well. Right? Yeah, it definitely tells a story. 
kind of where the lighter darkness aspect comes in is this what they call a corruption track that your character has. And as you throw the default runes, there's an up or down arrow that will allow you to move that up or down. What they do is kind of twofold. It will, at the end of the game, get you a certain amount of triumph or tragedy points. And also, it determines what kind of hero or anti-hero cards you can play. If you've played like, straight down the middle, where you're kind of like neither, neither side's too strong, you can play both types of cards. If you go heavy hero, well, you can only play hero cards, and vice versa. So there is some strategy there. A lot of the white cards tend to be, hey, help another person for a benefit. The anti-hero cards tend to be, screw over a person for a benefit, <laughs> generally speaking. They all do a lot of different things, but there is an aspect of trying to manage that. Because if you go way too dark, you just strictly lose points. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there is a penalty for going a little too bad. But I don't see that come up all that often, frankly. Yeah. They've got two expansions out so far that basically lets you play characters in a specific setting. There is one that is based on the... God, what is the, the... Yeah, the name of the wind. the wind. The King Killer Chronicles. So that set lets you play a lot of stuff in that setting. There's a new one about the Stormlight Archive from Brandon Sanderson. So if you're fans of either of those, it's a neat way to take those base mechanics and sort of include options for either or indeed both of those worlds. I think that is a really good way for them to expand this game because it is so thematic in the character creation that it just makes sense to be like, hey, what if you're planning a character in this world? Yeah, it's a game about telling stories, so let's take some well-told stories and and put them in here. The one complaint I have about the game, and largely I like the game, is that you can fail on your turn to get a card, and if that happens to you twice in a row, you feel really, really far behind. Yeah. Yeah. There's no good catch-up mechanic in the mm-hmm. game function. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they try and do it with the experience tokens, because I think you get experience if you do fail, but that only goes... So it's not enough. It just doesn't quite do it. Doesn't I agree. Quite do it. So, get good. It's <laughs> That's much. basically what Joe said. Don't, don't mess it up. That was Call to Adventure. I'm tired of being in the past, Brian. <laughs> the past is boring. Let's go to the future. Okay. Perhaps we'll go to Dune Imperium. Sure, that sounds like fun. (laughs) I hope so, because that's the next thing on the list. Ooh, is it? Dune Imperium was published by Direwolf, designed by Paul Denon, and released in 2020. And its expansion, Rise of Ix, was released in 2022. Are we sure it's not Rise of Nine? It's not just Roman numerals? (laughs) I am am 100% sure. It is definitely Ix. Rise of the Nine. So, in Dune, you are playing both a worker placement game and a deck builder game at the same time, and they overlap in a really, really enjoyable way. On your turn, you'll draw five cards, and every card has a top and a bottom, in essence, right? The top effect is the effect that happens when you play the card as part of placing one of your pawns on a space to get some benefit. The bottom of the card occurs if you don't use the top part of the card. And, you know, some cards have very strong hold and hand abilities. Some cards have very strong play abilities. Some cards have very strong both, which makes it somewhat of a challenge to decide how you're going to use it. In addition, every card indicates a number of places on the board where you can send your pawn. There's a bunch of major factions, the Bene Gesserit, the Spacing Guild, the Emperor, and the Fremen. And they each have their own individual symbol that if you have their symbol, you can go visit them and get some specific bonus. There's also some general purpose symbols. 
triangle is kind of like all the chome spaces having to do with money and markets. There's the green space, which has to do with technology and gathering resources. And then there's, I think it's the blue spaces, which have to do with the planet, like stuff on the planet itself. And so every pawn that you play is accompanied by a card. That card will limit the places where your pawn can go. And then at the end of the round, every round there's a fight for some resource on planet. And over the course of the turn, you might or might not, depending on where you place your pawns, have the options to kind of move cubes into this center, into this conflict area, which tends to have pretty good rewards. One of the things I think is super interesting about the game is victory points are really hard to get. Most conflicts will give one victory point. There are a handful of, like, cards that'll get a victory point. You know, if you buy the most expensive card, right, which is very much like an estate in... um, Dominion. In Dominion, right, you can also get a victory point. And once someone gets to, I think it's... I forget the number. Ten. Um, ten. Uh, the game is now ending that turn. And everyone has their chance to kind of get in their last couple victory points. And there are a couple of intrigue cards, which will give you like kind of end game scoring victory points as well. So you can possibly have a come from behind victory if someone ends the game just getting to ten and you are at nine and get two additional victory points from some intrigue card that you have in your hand. So yeah, that's kind of the game. It's really interesting because basically what they've done is they've taken the sort of traditional Dominion style deck builder in which I play these cards to do things and then I spend all the points that they've given me. Whereas in this one, it sort of slows that down because you're playing all the cards that you're using to place your workers over the course of several turns. And then at the end, you do what would normally be the end of turn by phase with whatever you've got left. And it's interesting to see how that stretches out. And of course, with the worker placement, there's limited places that you can go. There's only one way to get a certain benefit or only limited places to get certain resources. So you really have to choose your order of operations. It's super clever and really well done. The expansion, I've only played with it once, but I think it is a strict improvement. I think I would almost always want to play the game with the expansion now. Yeah, it adds a new sideboard, which has technologies, which are permanent upgrades for your faction. And it also overlays the top like political and financial section of the board and removes, frankly, removes some of the spaces that were... Like, there's a couple spaces up there that are kind of pointless, ultimately, right? Like, they don't get used that often, Mm -hmm. and I feel like the expansion tightens it up a lot by removing some of those spaces and kind of moving them around so there's the same number of spaces up top, but they now do different things. Some of them do a lot more targeted things, which I think is great. And, like, all the technology stuff, I think, is also very fun. Mm -hmm. It feels very impactful when you acquire technology. It's very powerful at either gives you some really strong benefit right now or it gives you an ongoing benefit that is really yeah it's a it's a big investment to get there but it's usually worth it Mm -hmm. and as is traditional with most of the dune games the theming is strong with this one it definitely feels like if you're playing the harkonnen and you're collecting all these intrigue cards and doing all this nasty stuff it definitely feels different than if you're playing you know somebody like the atreides this is one of my favorite new games the last few years it's just really well put together yeah, I really want to try. I haven't had to try to play the epic game mode variant yet, which is instead of playing to tw- 10, you play to 12. Oh, God. <laughs> and there's a card that you add. You replace one of the Dune Desert Planets with a Control the Spice, which is a much better card, like gets you more spice more quickly to kind of speed the game up some, which I think would be very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Just two extra victory points doesn't sound like a lot, but victory mm-hmm. points can be hard to come by in this game. 
They for sure can be. And with the alliances, there are ways to take the points away from other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've got a lot of clever stuff going on in this game, and I am a big fan. So that was Dune Imperium. Next one on our list is a little number called Etherfields, which came out in 2020 from Awakened Realms, designed by Michel Orash. And uh, I'm very sorry. I think it's Michael Orex, but... Well, that takes all the fun out of it. It sounds so American. Hey, he's one of my favorite designers. Well, no, he does good work. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just... So, Michael or Michelle, we're sorry, but you do good work. Etherfields is a long-form campaign storytelling game with a lot of miniatures and some amazing art and a very deliberately confusing storyline. It is set in the world of dreams. And basically, you start out as these four different characters. And like Tainted Grail, one of Awakened Realm's other ones, you're playing a very specific character. You just don't know that much about who you are yet. But you're sort of an archetype. You might be the gambler or the, uh, I'm trying to think what the other ones are called, but there's... Free spirit, the architect or the engineer. Yeah. Specialist. And the tough guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the tough guy. The tough guy. Mm. Yeah. So you're playing an archetype and you don't really know much about who you are, but you start with your deck of cards that you can use. And there are a lot of cards specific to your character and as you advance and sort of discover more of your own story you're able to put more character specific cards into your deck the basic premise is that you are wandering around the dreamscape which is sort of like the world map if you will like you do yeah exactly and trying to find your way to get keys which will let you unlock individual dreams, which is where you sort of zoom in and do kind of a tactical exploration and combat thing. That's kind of a dungeon crawly. Yeah, yeah basically. As is traditional with Awaken Realm games, the out-of-the-box version is very grindy. There's like a handful of places in the overworld map where you get random encounters, and there's only like four of them in the deck to start with, and one of them is a combat. So rules as written, you're going to have that combat like every time between adventures. Thankfully, they have recognized this is a thing and they've put a streamlined version in to make it a little more uh, manageable, what they call continuous dream mode for people who are kind of just interested in getting to the story. Yeah, it's one card in a paragraph of rules. We've tried it both ways and used the continuous dream mode. Yeah, for like sure. It. Yeah. It's really interesting because not only are you building your individual character's deck as you go, but like as you discover and unlock things, you are adding more possible encounters to the dream deck and the things on the individual dreams that you go. It's sort of like there's a bunch of nested deck builders going on in here. Okay, you're adding stuff to the item deck and to the market item deck of things you can purchase, as well as to the cards that are available in the market. And yeah. Yeah, it's a little reminiscent of some of the stuff like Gloomhaven did. Hey, when this character shows up, then there are these new encounters that are, are now part of the system. Right. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've dabbled with a little just to get familiar with the rules, and I think we might actually start playing the campaign here soon. Frank, I know you've I'm excited. gone through a lot more of it. We finished the first campaign or the first half of the campaign in the main box, depending on how you call it. There's either two campaigns or two halves of one campaign. And yeah, it's kept our interest. The dreams are crazy. The number of times where the game breaks its own rules or requires you to do, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> or just something totally bonkers 
are quite a few. Yeah, I know we've talked about there are some similarities in the storytelling between this and Vagrant Song, but everything that you've just described feels like it should hit on all cylinders for me. Well, we will certainly Yeah, I mean, try. that's because Vagrant Song should have hit on all cylinders for you, so... <laughs> <clears throat> Guys, we had that 20-minute discussion in the last episode. <laughs> it's true. There again. It's true. Mike brought it up. I didn't do it. <laughs> I will say that, as is traditional with Awakened Realms, the miniatures are absolutely stunning. They're intricate. They're detailed. These are not your standard fighter-thief characters. They're very unique, and there's like an upgunned version of each character miniature that you can use later in the campaign. And, of course, you get a little tuxedo and top-hatted penguin, which is... The business penguin's the most The business penguin is brilliant. Yes. Ooh, I do like that you get an upgraded miniature. That's nice. As far as the gameplay in a dungeon, you basically, you have three colors on your cards. All the cards are dual use, so they have a special ability at the bottom you can use instead of the resources. But most of it's using yellows to move around. And then yellows, reds, or greens to play on to either attack things with reds or talk to things with greens. And that's a lot of the game is moving around and doing this. The order in which you do around and how to assemble and when to use special powers or get things as cards are so much you want to do on a turn that even that fairly basic structure, plus all the crazy things they do with that structure, Make the game compelling. Even though, it, like you say, it looks slash feels kind of like a dungeon crawl, it's not like we're just running around killing a bunch of stuff. There's like, we have to sneak away from this thing, we have to stay away from the things that are in the light and hide in the shadows. There's a lot of different goals and things you need to do rather than just running around and doing combat. Things you can't kill. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. And just some of the little one-time mechanics they have are so neat. There's a part early in the game where each player chooses a mask for their character. And the masks are these weird little cardboard tokens that have, like, one word on them, like haste or ghost or something like that. And, you know, there's a bunny mask and a bird skull mask and all these different things. And you have no idea what they do, but you pick one, and then there's a special effect on the back of it that you'll have. And you're not allowed to look at the back when you're picking. Exactly. That's in the rules. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just a lot of really fun stuff. It's definitely not a game for everyone, but I'm really looking forward to playing it. But yeah, game. not enough just games make us break out the crayons, so. <laughs> <laughs> but you always can break out the crayons, Frank. Oh, totally. Yeah. To. Yeah. yeah, we were pretty close to starting a game of this, and I think we will probably pretty soon. We needed a palate cleanser. Yes, uh, for to sure. Be fair. <laughs> we need to figure out the right group for this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, it's it's one that, again, not everyone will be into. It's interesting that actually, unlike a lot of these games, it can play up to five. I worry that that will make it too slow. Sure. But there is an expansion of a fifth character, which you can bring in. Lots of options. Anyway, we will report back on that if and when we do some more playing of it. That is Etherfields. And that is where we call an end to this episode. But stay tuned for more deck building next month. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening.
Joe, what? if the word Yodorowsky comes out of your mouth during this game discussion, I am turning this podcast around and we're going home. I Is that a challenge? That sounds like a challenge. That sounds like a challenge. I'll say Jodorowsky. That's fine. You can Excellent. say it. Oh, right. I okay. have an ally. Excellent. <laughs>